1: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 1. 11 Years of Tyranny? Welcome to a new season of Pax Britannica a podcast that covers the history of the British Empire from beginning to end. If you're a new listener to the podcast, the previous season covered the period of the early Stuarts, from James VI and I's accession to the thrones of England and Ireland in 1603, through the early forays of the English into America and Asia, and into the reign of James's son Charles. We covered the founding of Jamestown and the colonies of New England, the settlements in Newfoundland, of St. Kitts and Nevis, of Providence Island, and many more scattered outposts of this growing English world. In the east, we saw the first steps of the East India Company, as it struggled just to get an audience with the Mughal emperors, and fought with Portuguese and Dutch rivals from Homoz to Java, while in the three kingdoms themselves we saw the plantation and, quote-unquote, civilising, of the North of England, the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, and most famously, the series of colonies in the island of Ireland. Throughout these events, we covered the political and religious disputes between populations and between individuals, from bloody and dramatic events like the gunpowder plot, to the less bloody but no less dramatic conflicts between the kings and their parliaments. If any of that sounds interesting, Then I, of course, recommend giving the previous 40-odd episodes of Season 1 a listen. But if you're just here to hear about the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, then not to worry. You won't need to listen to the entire back catalogue to understand what's going on. I will go over vital context when needed. After all, that's the point of dividing Pax Britannica into seasons. So, without further ado, let's get into it. When we last discussed the personal rule of Charles I... We saw how he had done his best to reign without calling on parliamentary taxation. His previous parliaments had founded on an entire reef of disagreements between the House of Commons and the King on foreign policy, on finance, on religion, and on issues of personnel. As we shall see over the next few episodes, these disagreements had not gone away just because there was no parliament. In the realm of foreign affairs, Charles had gone to war with the Habsburgs of Spain and Austria. Not to get lost in the details, but let's just say that the war was initially supported by the House of Commons, but after repeated and expensive failures, they were unwilling to throw good money after bad. The financial situation for Charles was precarious. His father had been an extravagant spender, racking up huge debts in gifts and pensions to courtiers and their clients. James's own difficulties with Parliament meant he was never able to secure the full amount of taxation he required or requested, and the debts kept rising. Charles had even worse results from his few Parliamentary sessions. One notable issue was the collection of tonnage and poundage. This was a trade duty traditionally granted to the monarch for life at their first Parliament. The Commons took the unprecedented and, in Charles's eyes, hostile approach of granting it for only a single year. The King would have to call Parliament every year to renew it, if he wanted to follow the law. Charles was furious, prorogued Parliament, and collected it anyway. After Parliament was recalled, the Commons began investigating Charles's closest favourite, his right-hand man, George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham. Before they could impeach him and bring him to trial, Charles dissolved his first Parliament in August 1625. But there was still a war to fight, and Charles had to call another Parliament to try and pay for it with taxation. Despite doing what he could to disqualify his most vocal critics, his second Parliament was even less productive than his first. They once again took aim at Buckingham, and once again, Charles dissolved the body before they could harm his friend. Unfortunately, Parliament had refused to grant the King any money until their grievances with Buckingham were addressed. No impeachment, no taxation. So, Charles just bypassed Parliament, demanding forced loans which were exactly what you'd expect. The King demanded a loan from a subject, and he would definitely probably maybe pay them back, potentially those who refused to be uh, generous were jailed. This was incredibly unpopular, as you might imagine, but it raised a substantial amount of money, which was used to pay for an attack on France, because although Charles was at war with Spain, an alliance with France had soured after the French used English ships to attack Protestant rebels. The money from the forced loan paid for an expedition to relieve the siege of those rebels, but it failed. Charles reluctantly agreed to call another Parliament, and Parliament agreed to grant the King taxation, in return for the petition of right. This was essentially a list of things that Charles had been doing, which Parliament considered illegal, and by accepting it, Charles would effectively admit he had been acting illegally. The forced loan was one such grievance, the ignoring of habeas corpus another. Charles delayed, and did what he could to avoid giving the petition legal authority, but when the House of Lords joined the House of Commons on the matter, he relented, and taxation was duly voted. With the petition of right settled, the Commons now turned their attention to the collection of tonnage and poundage and the impeachment of Buckingham, and right on cue, Charles prorogued the session. As another expedition to aid the French rebels was being arranged, The Duke of Buckingham was stabbed to death by an army officer. Charles was devastated. Buckingham had been his closest friend, and something of a father figure for many years. His reaction was not shared by the bulk of England. His assassination was celebrated, his killer praised as a martyr. Charles blamed Parliament for Buckingham's death, for spreading lies and feeding his unpopularity when the session was recalled in January 1629, and once again took aim at tonnage and poundage, Charles had had enough. He ordered the Parliament dissolved. However, a group of MPs physically prevented the session from closing by locking the doors and holding the Speaker of the House down in his chair while they read out a list of grievances. The men were arrested, and one of them would die in the Tower of London. From here on, Charles did what he could to rule without calling another parliament. He came to terms with France and Spain, ending the expensive wars. Peace meant an increase in trade, and customs duties brought in a significant amount of cash. Less popular was the government's revival and reinvigorating of several institutions which had traditionally been a source of income for the crown. Fines for recusancy, that is, for not attending church services, usually due to being Catholic, were increased until they were five times the original amount. Old traditions were revived, such as the stipulation that men of a certain income were to attend the king's coronation to be knighted, with fines for those who did not do so. This was an ancient tradition which had fallen out of practice, but Charles brought it back and set the financial requirement to what it had been under Henry VIII. £40. There had been 400% inflation since then, so this meant that over 9,000 households had to pay fines between £10 and £80. Royal titles to lands and forests were dusted off, and people living on these lands were fined. Despite having agreed with Parliament in the petition of right that monopolies were forbidden, Charles bestowed a number of them on corporations, claiming that the ban was only on monopolies granted to individuals. From a certain point of view, this was a successful financial policy. The Crown's debt was steadily reduced, and the household began to run on an annual surplus. But the cost was widespread resentment, which afflicted almost every level of English society. The most infamous and controversial for contemporaries and historians Was ship money. This was another traditional source of income for the English crown with centuries of precedent and had resurfaced during the reign of James VI and I. Essentially, in times of emergency, the king could demand a ship, or the money for a ship, from the coastal counties. So in 1634, Charles's privy council did so. This caused a bit of grumbling because, as far as most could tell, the Kingdom wasn't in an emergency, officially, England was at peace, as we covered back in season one episode thirty eight The demand for ship money was not completely unjustifiable. Mark Kishlansky and Jane Olmayer both point out that Dutch, French, Spanish, and Barbary raiders were attacking English shipping and English coasts. Many of Charles's subjects were petitioning the King for protection. Charles also had international concerns to consider. The 30 years' war was just over halfway done, and Charles still wanted to see his family restored to the Palatinate, after his brother-in-law had been deposed a decade before. The belligerents, both Protestant and Catholic, were happy to make promises to this effect, but required the support of an English fleet in return. An English fleet which was in a terrible state, It's important to note that requisitioning merchant vessels for war had worked fine previously, but England's naval rivals were constructing dedicated military ships, and a slapdash of trading hulks would be at a terrible disadvantage in any battle. Old ships had to be repaired, new ones built, and a parliament was not a viable option to resolving this very expensive problem. And so, Having checked with the Attorney-General that he was well within his rights, Charles issued the call for ship money in 1634. And then he did it again, in 1635. And again, in 1636. And, you guessed it, once again in 1637. From 1635, the demands were issued not just to the coastal counties, but inland counties as well. The logic being if the fleet was unable to stop an invasion, it wouldn't only be the coast that suffered. That makes a certain amount of sense, and Charles said he was working within the letter of the law, but it wasn't tradition. For example, the county of Buckinghamshire was issued a writ to contribute one warship, or the cost of a warship, which would serve at Portsmouth for six months, after which it would be returned to Buckinghamshire. Now, if you know where Buckinghamshire is, the floor in these instructions should be clear. If you don't and want to Google it, you will immediately notice something. If you don't know and can't or don't want to search it, there's one tiny, minuscule, blink-and-you'll-miss-it problem. Buckinghamshire is slap-bang in the middle of England. Well, technically the southeast, but what I mean is, it's landlocked. The writ gave the county the option of providing a ship, but in reality, the demand was for money. Charles had to, as Conrad Russell puts it, pretend that what was, in fact, a naval tax was an old-fashioned exercise in conscription. What the king said he was doing may have been legal, but this was definitely not legal. It crossed the boundary from conscription into taxation. Charles collected ship money with only some resistance until 1637. The Lord Mayor of London was summoned to court in 1634, when, acting on his own legal advice, he refused to demand money from the citizens without calling a parliament. When he left Charles's presence, after having a firm talking to, the Lord Mayor oversaw the payment of 36,000 pounds from the City of London. When the collection expanded to inland counties, and when ship money threatened to become an annual occurrence in 1636, worries mounted. In January 1637, the Earl of Warwick tried to explain to the King that his tenants, quote, were all old and accustomed to the mild rule of Queen Elizabeth and King James, and were unwilling to sign away the liberties of England. Perhaps this criticism from the highest ranks of the nobility weighed on Charles, because in February he confirmed his legal right to collect ship money. The judges agreed that ship money could be levied when the kingdom was in danger, and it was the king who decided what constituted danger. This judgment wasn't acceptable to a gentleman named John Hampden. Hampden was reasonably well known among his peers for being a man of principle. He had served in Parliament, and he had a history of putting his liberty on the line if he thought he was in the right. He had been arrested alongside a relative, Sir Edmund Hamden, for refusing to pay the forced loan back in 1627. That, Hamden, had been one of the Knights of the Five Knights case, that early cause celebra for critics of Charles' policies, and he had died in prison. Well, in 1637, Hamden once again proved why he had his reputation.
0: I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe. So you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist?
1: Hamden was far from the only person who refused to pay ship money, and he was far from the most prominent. Viscount and Seeley had likewise refused to pay, for example. and Seeley sued the constable and sheriff of Lincolnshire for illegally distraining his property in lieu of payment. In June 1637, he was brought to the Court of Star Chamber, and prosecuted on unrelated charges, though nothing came of this. Most likely this was meant as a threat to the Viscount, get in line, but if it was, then Say and Seeley called the government's bluff. On the advice of Oliver St. John, the lawyer and colleague in the Providence Island Company, he stood his ground and insisted that ship money was illegal, and dared the king to prove otherwise. Charles blinked first. Viscount Sayansili was, after all, a Viscount, it's in the name. He was a prominent figure, with resources that could resist the crown in court, and that was not a risk worth taking. The king and the Viscount both backed down, possibly on the understanding that Hamden's case would go ahead. Hampton himself was well aware of his role in this game. As Russell puts it, Hampton was campaigning for the principles of rule of law and taxation by consent, not for an arbitrary right to refuse any tax he did not like. Russell makes this case based on Hampton's behavior. He was liable for ship money in a number of parishes in Buckinghamshire, and he paid most of it, with the exception of some tactical choices everything but 1 pound in the parish of Stoke Mandeville he paid 8 pounds 4 shillings in great hamden but in great kimble he refused to pay 31 shillings in 6d he could afford all of this but he was deliberately sending a message to the government that he was unwilling to pay not because of the amount demanded or because of any opposition to the reason for ship money but because of its unclear legality The Hamden case was a test case for ship money, and everyone knew. Instead of being held in the Court of Exchequer, it was held in the Court of Exchequer Chamber, in front of all twelve judges, and the verdict would be made by majority vote. The prosecution for the Crown was led by no less than the Attorney General and the Solicitor General. Hamden was defended by Oliver St. John. The proceedings were followed religiously by the public, but by the end of the case in June 1638, the judges found in favour of the king. Just. Seven to five. It was a victory for the crown, but it was close. Too close. Charles had won a Pyrrhic victory. Hampden was elevated from obscure country gentleman to champion of the rule of law, and secured his election to both the short and long parliaments to come. Had Charles waited to prosecute Hamden, it is likely that the problem would have been taken out of his hands. Hamden had been hoping to migrate to the colonies, but because he was taken to court by the king, he never did. Though in that alternate reality, another champion of justice would have been found. It's worth considering the reasoning of some of these judges to explain why it was so close. It might seem odd that royal judges would find against the king and yet some did. Some didn't, such as Sir Robert Berkeley, who didn't agree that the case was about taxation, but about duty to serve the military. Ship money was in lieu of that service, and in his view, the military situation justified the service. The King could expect the service of his subjects, and Parliament need not be involved. He found in favour of the King. So did Lord Chief Justice Finch, who echoed Berkeley's view that the king was well within his rights to demand service and payment from his subjects in the defence of the realm. Amongst those who found against the king were the judges Bramston and Davenport. They took a similar view to Berkeley, but followed it to a different conclusion. The king could legally demand service, no one was questioning that. But service was not what Hampden was refusing to provide. He was in court for a debt, and ship money was taxation. Lord Chief Justice Hutton decried ship money as contrary to the laws of the realm, and used the platform to rant about the lack of parliaments over the last decade. The aftermath of the Hampden case and the effectiveness of ship money is debated. Russell argues that payment of ship money collapsed in the wake of the case. He lists two other conditions for this. A rise in food prices and the outbreak of rebellion in Scotland, but the Hamden case is presented as the paramount reason. For his part, Tim Harris argues the Hampton case is oversold, that ship money was an overwhelming success, and the breakdown in its collection was due more to the Scottish Rebellion. Harris and Jane Olmeyer concur that between 1634 and 1638, more than 90% of the demanded money was collected. This was far more efficient than any parliamentary taxation. Further, despite the wishes of the Puritan opposition, hamden Warwick, Say and Seeley, and St. John amongst them, Harris points out that most complaints about ship money were due to the assessments given. Olmayer likewise agrees that opposition to ship money was less to do with the principle and more to do with the practicality of its collection. You see, unlike a parliamentary subsidy, ship money was collected from a much broader strata of society. People who would ordinarily not earn enough to have to contribute now had to, based on the admittedly inconsistent assessments of county sheriffs. People thought they were being charged too much, not that they were being charged illegally. However, as Harris himself acknowledges, it was much safer to dispute the payment of ship money on the grounds that they were being overcharged to accuse the king of acting illegally. Disquiet and resentment about the king's behaviour was widespread, even amongst those who loyally collected the money. A sheriff in Suffolk, for example, executed his duty and collected the ship money, but wrote privately that this was absolutely against the law, and an utter oppression of the subject's liberty. The success of ship money was due to the effectiveness of collection rather than the willingness of taxpayers to pay it so in this episode we've covered charles's financial policy during the personal rule it was effective in the short term with the crown's income almost reaching 900,000 pounds a year by the end of the period this was double what charles's father had received when he came to the english throne in 1603 even accounting for inflation Sure, a lot of his methods were unpopular, but as far as Charles was concerned, this was a small price to pay to avoid calling another Parliament. If the situation hadn't deteriorated in his two other kingdoms, perhaps Charles would have been able to establish a financial system that didn't rely on parliamentary subsidies. That is, after all, what his critics most feared. But that wasn't going to happen. Harris puts it nicely. Governments have to be able to respond to the unexpected, and Charles had not managed to put the finances of his kingdom on a sure enough footing so that it was in a position to respond to the Scottish crisis in an effective enough manner. So that is where we will leave off today. Next time, we will go into detail about the religious policy of Charles and his Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord. The episode after that will look at events in one of the other three kingdoms, Ireland. And the episode after that will cover the events in Charles's northernmost kingdom, his ancestral home, the place he had been born but had not yet returned to, Scotland. Thanks to everyone who attended my talk at the Intelligence Speech Conference last month. It was a lot of fun. I had some fantastic questions and I enjoyed the entire conference. I also got a comment from the History of Byzantium's Robin Pearson about my lockdown hair, and I got to show off my History of England mug, which I was very happy with. I've made the recording of that talk available to members of my House of Lords of the rank of Earl and above, aka patrons pledging $5 a month or more. It should be visible in their ad-free feed directly before this episode. I'm considering making a bonus series on wartime civilian internment as a Patreon exclusive, so let me know what you guys think. Since the end of last season, my House of Lords has grown quite a bit, so please join me in welcoming Duncan McHale, Marquess of Annandale, Brandon Stansbury, Marquess of Montague, Samuel Manker, the Earl of Lindsay, Gregory, the Viscount Murray, Cat Baroness Laurie, Doug, Baron Bowman, Baroness Amy, and Jason, Baron Macaulay. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.